Well, I want to welcome you today to the sixth week of our Happiness Is Message series. All of us have done some dumb things in the pursuit of happiness, and I'm just sharing them all with you over the course of these six weeks. I have hundreds of dumb things I've done, but one in particular that sticks out in my mind was after my wife Stacy and I had been married for a couple of years, it was Valentine's Day, and we were really poor. We didn't have a whole lot of money at the time, and so we scrounged up as much money as we could to go to one of our favorite restaurants, which is the Cheesecake Factory. And so one of the things I love about the Cheesecake Factory and any restaurant that gives you free bread is, you know, you can fill up on that, and then you get to take your food home later, so you get double, double whammy from it. Anybody else do that? And so... This particular occasion, we get there, the, the waitress takes us to our seats, we eat about three loaves of bread, and then after that, we get an appetizer, we eat the appetizer, and then that night, I got mashed potatoes and salmon, and I was about halfway through with my mashed potatoes and salmon, and I started to think, I probably shouldn't take this food home with me. You don't put salmon in the fridge and eat it the next day. I need to eat the whole dang thing, so I was about halfway through. I'm already feeling full, but I just keep going. So I stuff a little bit more in, and I start to feel my esophagus filling up. I took some water to put it down, and it's all going around there. That made it worse. And finally, I got the whole meal in, and I just felt gross, like a one big glutton there in Cheesecake Factory. And then the waitress walks by, and guess what she has in her hand? The menu for cheesecake. And so she shows it to us, and of course, since we're at Cheesecake Factory, you can't not eat cheesecake, so we got a piece of cheesecake. And I'm hoping that this is going to make me feel better, that pleasure is going to return in the moment that I eat this cheesecake. I shove it down, and by the time I was done, I was as bad as a drunk driver. I mean, I'm waddling to the car. This is a romantic evening between my wife and I, and I just have stuffed myself. And so we're driving home, and I start to get that nausea feeling in my stomach, and it's getting worse, and I'm like hoping I can make it home because I don't want to throw up on this special occasion. And finally, it gets so bad that I have to pull over the car on the side of the road, and there out comes everything all over the road. Salmon, mashed potatoes, coffee, cheesecake, red velvet cheesecake, uh, all over the place. Dumb, 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 dumb decision made in the pursuit of pleasure. And some of the things that we do looking for happiness and pleasure, they're funny. We can laugh about them. We can tell them over at the dinner table or other occasions, and and people like it. Other decisions that we make in the pursuit of happiness leave us with tremendous amounts of brokenness. Relationships that we pursue hoping that they'll fill the hole in our hearts. Maybe it's a house or a car that we buy or a vacation that we go on, all hoping that this will result in filling this gap in our lives and lead to joy. But what we've been saying with this message series, there are two paths to happiness. There's a path to happiness that society outlines, that the world gives us, that leads us to brokenness. It's what we've called the happiness facade. The further we get down this path, the more brokenness we experience. Habits, hurts, and hang-ups enter into our lives as we pursue happiness in all the wrong places. But there's another path that we've been looking at throughout this series And it's a path that Jesus gives us through his teachings. And we see that when we adopt or we live out the teachings of Jesus, it results in lasting joy and contentment. And that's what we want to pursue. We want to have a perspective shift as we look at happiness. And I want you to hear this. I've said this every week, but I want to reemphasize. It is not the pursuit of joy that's wrong. It's the pursuit of joy in all the wrong places, ultimately, that leads us to brokenness. And so today we're going to continue with the sixth of eight phrases that Jesus gives us called the Beatitudes. And these Beatitudes are found in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verse number 8. 
In Matthew chapter 5, verse number 8, the sixth of eight Beatitudes, I want us to read this together aloud. It'll be on the screens to my right and left and behind me. It says this, blessed are the pure in heart. We'll start over with everybody reading along. Don't have the excuse of it being too early in the morning anymore. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Jesus says that there is a blessing that comes from purity of heart. Now, this word blessed literally means happy. Jesus says happy are those whose hearts are pure because when their hearts are pure, they will see God. Now, what in the world does it look like for us to live this way? And why does Jesus say that this will ultimately result in happiness in our lives? That's what we're going to unpack today. And to do that, we're going to look at a story found in the book of Mark Chapter 7, verses 1 through 22. And if you have a Bible, you can turn there. It'll also be on the screens. I want us to see that Jesus emphasized the heart over and over and over again throughout his life and teachings. You can go back multiple times in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and see how Jesus addresses the human heart. And this was very frustrating for the religious leaders. The Pharisees did not like the fact that Jesus emphasized the heart because they had created all these rules and procedures on top of God's law to make them look good externally. And now Jesus comes and he kind of bashes their system and goes to the heart and says, everything that God wants us to do can boil, be boiled down to two things. It's loving God and loving people. That's the essence of the law. Pharisees were so frustrated and on this one particular occasion in Mark chapter 7, Jesus is hanging out with his disciples, and guess what they forgot to do? They forgot to put hand sanitizer on before the meal. And their hands were dirty, and they eat food with dirty hands, and the Pharisees get frustrated at Jesus. And they say, your disciples, they're, they're horrible. They're atrocious sinners because they didn't wash their hands before eating their food. They've broken this religious rule that we've put into place. Because they thought, the Pharisees thought, that if dirt got on your hands and then into your stomach, that you would be an unclean person spiritually. And so now there's going to be this debate back and forth between Jesus and the Pharisees, and Jesus is going to end it by putting them in their rightful place. But it's an emphasis on the human heart and how the heart shapes the rest of our lives as we address this question of what it would look like for us to live with purity of heart. We pick up in verse number six. Jesus replies to the Pharisees and their criticism of his disciples, and he says this, Isaiah, talking about the Old Testament prophet, was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. He just straight up calls the pastors, the priests, the religious leaders hypocrites. You're not living what you are preaching, he says. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. You're doing all the right stuff on the outside. Everybody sees it, you look really religious, but I see right into your heart, Jesus says, and your heart is very far from me. They worship me in vain, and their teachings are but rules taught by men. They took the law of God, and they stacked all these rules on top of it, so they never had to deal with their hearts. And Jesus says, this is all just a bunch of junk that you've put into place so that you can avoid never having to deal with what's coming from within your heart. Now, afterwards, Jesus walks away with his disciples, and they want to debrief on the situation. They want to know, what is it that Jesus is really trying to communicate? So verse 14 through 16, Jesus says, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside of a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it's what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. Jesus is saying, food goes in the mouth and it comes out. That's not what makes you unclean. It's what comes out that makes a man unclean. 
So afterwards, in their debrief in verse number 17, it says, after he left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about the parable. And how would you expect Jesus to reply? Break it down, make it real simple. Here's what he says. Are you so dull? Are you so stupid that you don't understand what I'm trying to communicate? That's literally what Jesus is asking. Are you so dull that you don't understand? And then he goes, don't you see that nothing enters a man that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean. But for, excuse me, it doesn't go into his heart. It goes into his stomach and then out of his body. And yes, Jesus is saying what you think he's saying here. I just imagine him doing the visual with this. It goes in here, it goes out here, in here, out here. That's not what makes a man unclean. He's specifically saying food goes in, food comes out. It's in the toilet tomorrow morning. That's not what makes you unclean. And then here's what he says. He went on. What comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, from the inside of humanity comes this problem. Out of men's hearts come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. That's a long list. And Jesus says that's what comes from within our hearts. All of these evils come from where? Inside. And they make a man unclean. Guys and girls, our biggest struggle is not the world around us. Our biggest struggle is what's going on inside of us. It's the wickedness and the folly that comes from the human heart. Jeremiah 17.9 says it like this. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? All of us, from the point of birth, are born into this world with a predisposition to go against God's very best for our lives. There is wickedness and folly. And if you don't believe me, have a kid. It starts at birth and continues. I see it in teenagers. We see it in adults. There is wickedness in every single human being that comes from within us. I remember being eight years old, and I, I, I've shared some of my OCD tendencies. I, when I was a kid, I always would hate how my mom would make me late for everything. She, she'd get on the phone. She'd start talking to somebody. She, you know, I'd go out to the car. I'd honk the horn multiple times. And on one particular occasion, I was waiting to go to football practice. I'd gotten all dressed up with my cleats on and my helmet. I'm sitting in the car. I'm getting really hot. And my mom is inside on the phone. Somebody called right before I walked out the door. And I turned on the car. And I'm watching the timer. And the, the clock is going up. And I'm getting late. It's getting later and later. I'm late for practice. So I got so frustrated and so angry that I just picked up my shoe. And I started kicking the dashboard on my mom's car. I kicked out the blinker. I kicked out the fiberglass all across the dashboard. You guys looking at me like I'm crazy. You guys never done anything like that before? Okay. It starts when you're young is the point I'm trying to make. It just, it comes from within and we can deal with it and we can be honest about it or we can ignore it or we can create religious rules around it to make us feel better about ourselves. And my encouragement to us, and I think that the encouragement that Jesus gives through his life the way that you experience purity of heart is through the cleansing of your heart. Let me say it one more time because this is the overarching principle of today. The way that we experience purity of heart is through the cleansing of our hearts. It's a cooperation with God letting him clean out the junk inside of us. And the discouraging part is it's never over. 
It's never finished. It's not like we're going to arrive someday and all of a sudden there's no more junk that comes from, from within. The, the bent of our hearts is wickedness and the purity only comes in cooperation with God. I, I thought about it like this this week, that our hearts are a lot like a sponge and we, we have a filter on our hearts. We know how to not let all that anger and frustration and greed come out, but when we're squeezed, and we're under pressure, that's when all that junk comes out. That's when jealousy comes out. That's when anger comes out. That's when I want to take a kid's head and slam it against the wall. It's when, it's when everything around us seems to be pressing in and the junk just starts to come out. So how do you deal with that? I mean, you can go, you can go to Vegas and hang out for a couple days. You can go to Maui for a week and sit on the beach and have a Mai Tai and you don't have to deal with it. But then you come back to, to the Silicon Valley and it's breakneck speed, life's moving. How do we deal with the junk in our heart? That's what I want to talk about and give you some very practical ways that we can cooperate with God and let him bring us to the kind of purity that he wants us. And then I'm going to tie it together and talk about why Jesus says that seeing God actually results in joy. So here are four enemies of the heart that restrict the life flow of what God wants to do in us. It's, it's like a vine that grows on a tree and restricts life when this is what God wants our lives to look like, filled with his fruit. Scripture says love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. God wants all of this to come out of our lives, but there are these enemies that grow up around our heart and restrict the life flow. And the process of becoming pure and living pure on a day-to-day basis is to let him begin to pull out some of these weeds. So I'm gonna talk about that. Here are four enemies of the heart, and this comes out of a book called Enemies of the Heart, so creative title there. I love the author. His name is Andy Stanley, so pick up the book. First enemy of the heart is this. It's the enemy of guilt, and it's this idea that I've taken from the world, and I need to repay the world. People from all different walks of life, all different religions feel this, that we've taken from the world, we've taken from others, and now we need to repay it. And what happens is guilt builds in our lives. It composite, it's like a comp- it keep, continues to compile on top of itself. And if we're, if we're not aware of it, if we don't allow God to cleanse and change us, this guilt can begin to ruin our lives and restrict the flow that, of life that God wants to bring into us. Let me say it like this. This last week was a, a pretty stressful week in our household. My two boys, who are five and three, need some anger management courses. They just can't seem to get along. They, they continue to fight over one little toy when there are 80 other plastic toys in the house. I just cannot figure it out. And Stacy and I, one night, were just like, what are we doing wrong? I mean, these kids are like 85% of the time, they're arguing with each other and fighting with each other. And man, I need counseling after all of this now. And so in the midst of this, let, let me stop for a second. I'm going to be brutally honest with you today about my heart. Is that okay? And I don't want to pack any, like, religious, ga- play any religious games with you because I don't think it's helpful. I'm going to show you some of my own struggles. I said that earlier in the service on the last two messages. I forgot to say that. So if you want to judge me afterwards, you can. That's fine. But for the rest of you, I hope that this helps. And, and here's the deal. I'm sitting there. My kids are getting on my nerves. And you know, you, you know how as a parent sometimes you, like, you know you do it. You look at your watch and you're, you're eyeing the amount of time 
between now and when your kids go to bed. And you've got this mental clock going on. And you're, you're almost like you're going to go to the microwave and push it, the time a little bit forward so the kids are, you're like, oh, look, where'd all the time go? Bedtime. Time to go to sleep. So it was one of those nights, extreme amount of stress. Uh, our church, God has just been blessing us, but we've grown by like almost 100 people in a month. We're moving into a new facility. We're making some major decisions. I sense God leading uh, me to do a, a 21-day juice fast, which is only juice for 21 days. And all of this just kind of came out at one time. And there's this one night I'm just sitting there in the brown chair in our living room and kids are crawling all over me. And I'm just like enduring the last 30 minutes before my kids go to sleep. I'm just so ready, impatient with my kids. And I, I laid down in bed that night and I was so repulsed at myself. I was so repulsed at myself. I thought, I've been a follower of Christ for almost 20 years. I've been a pastor for 10 years. And I still can let some little midget make me so angry and frustrated. And you know, if I'm not careful, that guilt can drive me further and further and further away from God. And so that next morning, it's up at 5.30 a.m. and I'm on my knees and I'm saying to God, I need your mercy and grace. I desperately want to be patient with my kids. I want to love my family the way that the scripture calls me to love my family. And here's the deal. Your heart, if you're not careful, this greed will just continue to restrict the life flow. But there is a, there's a way to cooperate with God to let him pull out that guilt, and it's through confession. That's the replacement for guilt in our lives. That each of these enemies of the heart, there's a way to work with God to replace whatever that enemy is. And the replacement for guilt is confession. It's to identify with God the wickedness in our hearts to confess back to him. Scripture talks about how he's faithful and just that if we confess our sins to him, he'll forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That the more and more I identify with God and in community and life groups with other people, I confess my struggle. God gives me healing. God gives me victory. Maybe it's a marriage that you've been struggling with and your, your relationship, your communication, you're going back and forth. You can't get along in the home and it's time to begin to confess that both to your, your spouse, to confess it to God, and to confess it in community, and start to get healing from the brokenness. Maybe it's an addiction to pornography, and you, you can't stop going back to the internet to look at those images of her, or look at the images of other women that are not your spouse. And, and, and it's time to begin to experience the freedom that God wants you to experience by confessing that sin that you're holding on to, that brokenness. Listen, we are all broken. We all mess up. We've all blown it. That's why God sent his son to earth to pay for your wrongdoings so that you can find forgiveness and mercy. And I love this verse. Listen to it. Romans chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. It says this. It says, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've gained access by faith into grace, which now we stand. This verse is saying, you and I, can never pull ourselves up by the bootstraps. We'll never be able to work hard enough to stand before a holy and righteous God justified. It's only by faith, through God's grace, that we stand forgiven. And the message of the cross, when Jesus came here to hang on a cross, it was so that you and I could receive mercy and forgiveness. And as we place our faith in him, here's what happens. God sees you, the Father sees you, he sees you as a holy son, as a holy daughter, forgiven, received his mercy, and you can move forward in life with your past cleansed. And you say, you don't know my past. You don't know what I've done. 
You don't know the people that I've hurt. I don't. But I I do know that there is a God whose mercy is so strong that he came to save every single one of us, that if we'll confess there is no sin that is beyond God, that if we'll truly turn towards him, that you today can stand before him righteous, that the enemy of guilt can be in your past because of God's mercy and because of God's forgiveness. I hope that today you'll let, let your heart receive that. Enemy number one is guilt. The replacement for guilt is confession. Enemy number two is this, it's anger. And they get a little bit more personal as we go along. But anger is the mentality that you owe me. Because you've taken from me, because you've stolen from me, emotionally, physically, sexually, relationally, because you've taken from me, you owe me. And what happens to us is we start to hold other people in bondage because what they've done to us, and in our minds, they need to repay for what they've taken, and consequently, bitterness grows in our hearts, and then that bitterness becomes a root that then affects every relationship in every area of our life. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15, the Bible says this. It says, see that no one misses the grace of God, and that no bitter root grows up to cause troubles and, and defile many. That bitterness is like a toxin in our lives. It's released into every component in every area of our lives. And the replacement for bitterness is forgiveness. It's to cooperate with God to extend his forgiveness to the people around us. Maybe it's a spouse that abuses you with their words. Maybe it's a parent teacher, a coach that sexually abused you when you were a child. Maybe, maybe it's a boss that is slave driving you to meet quota. And there is this tremendous frustration inside of your heart because what they've taken from you. Maybe they took your innocence. Maybe they took your freedom. And you feel this tremendous frustration and anger in your heart towards them. And the only solution from a biblical standpoint is for you to release that person and to extend forgiveness towards them. And let me say, I know that this is not easy. I know that forgiving people doesn't come naturally. Let me say one component of forgiveness before I add the spiritual side of it. When it comes to forgiveness in our lives, what we think we're doing is we think we're putting somebody else in prison because of what they've done to us. And in our minds, we hold them hostage. We put them behind bars and we replay that offense over and over and over again. And then we replay what we'd like to do to that person over and over and over again. And what we fail to recognize is that what we're actually doing is we're putting ourselves in prison. It's like drinking toxin and expecting that somebody else would die as a result of it. The bitterness causes our lives to be filled with toxins, not somebody else's life. And so listen, the way that we cooperate with God is through forgiveness. And I I just want to say, I had a family member who has hurt me tremendously in my life. And I've had to make choices over and over and over again to forgive that person. And it seems like the same thing happens, same type of stuff over and over for years. Recently, I was praying through this And I was asking God to bring my heart to a point of forgiveness. And I felt like God so clearly spoke to me and said, Andy, I want you to see that person with the same eyes that I see that person. I want you to look through the perspective of my mercy towards that family member of yours to realize that that's the only way that you're you're going to be able to forgive that person. Forgiveness is not a natural process. Forgiveness is not something that we can do on our own strength. Forgiveness comes when I recognize my need for a Savior. I see the sickness in my heart. 
I receive his mercy, and then I recognize, again, the mercy that has been extended or is being offered to this person. And so many of us, we want to play the judge. We want to judge that person and repay them for the wrong that they've done to us. But here's what, here's what is so important to understand in the subject of forgiveness. When, when it relates to forgiveness, every wrong that has been committed against us will be made right in the end of time. Every injustice done to you and I will be resolved by a just God. And it'll be resolved one of two ways. It'll be resolved through God's taking the punishment of humanity through hanging on a cross and then giving forgiveness to that person. That he took that person's punishment and was brutally murdered by Roman soldiers on a cross so that that person could walk free. Or at the end of time, if the person has not received God's mercy, there will be judgment that God will extend to that person. And a part of forgiveness is me stepping back to let God be the judge and to realize how much I've been loved how much I've been forgiven, and then to be a conduit of his mercy and his forgiveness. It's not easy, and giving forgiveness to somebody does not mean that we automatically give them our trust again. It takes time to rebuild trust, and I'm not saying that we need to put our hearts out there again and all of a sudden let that person take us right back to the same circumstance, but what I'm saying is if we can make a choice from our heart to forgive others as they've wronged us, the forgiveness of God will flow into our lives in a different way. For many of you today, the lid in your life spiritually is your unwillingness to forgive somebody who's hurt you from your past. And consequently, you're not seeing God. That all of this stuff is like a lid above your eyes that prevents you from experiencing the power and the presence of God into your life. Enemy number one is guilt. The replacement is confession. Enemy number two is anger. The replacement is uh, forgiveness. And enemy number three is this. It's greed. It's the mentality that says, I owe me. I deserve it. I deserve more house. I deserve more money. I deserve more car. It's the idea that if my husband is going to treat me like this, then I deserve to go out with the credit card and spend the money how I feel. It's the guy in the room who says, if, if my wife is going to withhold sex from me when I'm on this business trip, I deserve a little bit of pleasure. It's the single in the room who works for a company and if my boss is going to slave drive me like this because I'm single and I can work till 10 o'clock at night, then I'm going to take from the company as I feel. It's this mentality that says because somebody's hurt me, because I'm stressed, because I'm overwhelmed, I deserve it. I deserve more. I deserve more house. I deserve more car. I deserve a better, clo better clothes. I deserve to go on this vacation. And if we're not careful, what happens is greed can become the rhythm of our lives and we see every relationship is an opportunity to fill what we think we deserve. And some of us, we're living there. And God wants to take that greed and he wants to replace it. And the replacement for greed are these two choices. The replacement for greed, number one, is gratitude. It's a choice to live with gratitude, to let God pull out the vine of greed and to replace it with gratitude of replaying how good he's been to us. I went through a season, again, uh, a couple months ago in the fall of, of great stress. We had to do some major restructuring with our church. I was feeling very overwhelmed uh, by my responsibilities as the pastor and I just remember feeling like, man, I'd love to call it quits. I'd love to go to Maui for a year and just do nothing but sit on the beach with my wife and let my kids go to my parents' house for a period of time. I'd love to escape from it all. I deserve that. 
And I remember very distinctly in a time alone with God, sensing God, and I even did a whole message out of what God was doing in my heart last December of just saying, I want to replace that. I want to replace that with generosity. I want to replace that with gratitude. I've blessed you so much. I've given you a wife that loves me and follows me. I've given you two precious, beautiful children. I've given you the opportunity of a lifetime to serve as the leader of this church. You'd never want to do anything different than this. The rest of your life, embrace it and live with gratitude. And I think that God began to cleanse my heart and bring fruit back as I let him replace with gratitude. And the other component of this is generosity. To realize that the good things that God gives into my life are to be extended to others. That when he blesses me, he doesn't bless me so I can hold it. He blesses me so I can be a conduit to the world around me. And it's beautiful what happens is that as God takes that greed and he replaces it with generosity and he replaces it with gratitude and he takes that anger out and he replaces it with forgiveness and good stuff starts to come out of our hearts and out of our lives. And then last but certainly not least is the weed or the enemy of jealousy. Jealousy over somebody else's success jealousy over what other people have. I heard someone say that some men never leave the locker room. Some of you will figure that out later. That the comparison in our hearts, that we compare ourselves to other people around us, we compare house sizes, we compare cars, we compare waistlines, we compare spouses, we compare boyfriends and girlfriends, we compare GPAs. We compare, we compare, we compare, we compare, and what happens is we see somebody else's success and there's jealousy that forms in our hearts out of other people's success. Now, if you notice, like when I was in college, I, I never got jealous over somebody getting a better GPA than me. In fact, I'd laugh at you if you got a better GPA than me. I'd say, how would you waste so much time when you could be enjoying your life in college? And we don't get envy and jealousy over things that we don't want. Like if you've got a bigger house than me or a nicer car than me, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't faze me. But I get pastor jealousy. When I see a church with a nice building, I'm like, oh, that's a nice building. That is phenomenal. And there's this, there's this envy that can build inside of me. Something happened to me this last fall. This happened two different occasions, so I think God's trying to teach me something. Um, there's a church planner that moves into town, and he's going to start a church here in the valley. And after he's been here for a couple weeks, another church decides that they're going to give him the facility on Sunday afternoon for like one-eighth of what we're paying for the school on Sunday morning. And I'm just like, God, do you realize how hard our setup crew is working every single Sunday morning on Sunday morning in the rain setting up? Can we give them a hand today? All in the rain this morning working hard. God, do you realize how, how much we're enduring here? I mean, we deserve for you to bless us with the building. And so there's this jealousy that started building in my heart. And I felt like God was saying very clearly, Andy, I want to replace your jealousy I want to replace your jealousy with the ability to celebrate for what I'm blessing this other person with. And you know our tendency? When somebody else succeeds, we want to pull them back down, don't we? We want to bring them back to our level. And we want to make reasons why they succeeded. Oh, he just got that house because he got a raise at his job. And it just so happens that he works for this company that got lucky in this one industry with this one wire, this one chip. And he didn't work for that. Look at me. I'm working so hard. He doesn't deserve this. I deserve this. And we start to rationalize why somebody else is successful and why we're not quite as successful. And jealousy continues to grow. 
And God wants to take that jealousy and replace it with the ability to celebrate other people. And so that pastor, we brought him to South Bay Church, brought him up on stage. He actually taught one Sunday, prayed over him. We started giving to his church. And it's like, crap in my heart, God just replaces it with joy and the ability to celebrate somebody else's success. Now, there's a couple encouraging things going on here and some discouraging stuff. I think that the discouraging side of this is it's never over. Like, wouldn't you, wouldn't you like it to be done? Like, God, I just want to arrive. I, I want to be the person you want to, me to be. But it's a battle. It's a daily battle. It's, it's one on your knees at 5.30 in the morning. It's one in the evening when you lay down before God and you confess. It's one at the, the workplace when you make a choice in your heart. It's a battle that has to be waged every single day. And if we'll embrace what God wants to do in us and we'll cooperate with him, then our lives will become this kind of fruitfulness that we're talking about. We'll have love. We'll have joy. We'll have peace. We'll have patience and goodness and kindness. And here, here's the beauty of all of it. Jesus says, what? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And when all this junk is in our lives, and we look out the front window of our lives, and we're driving down the highway of life, all we see, jealousy, greed, anger, guilt, and what God can do is he cleans that off in cooperation with him. And as you're driving down the highway, you see God's mercy. You see his peace you see his joy. You see a God that's smiling at you, that loves you, that cares about you. And all of a sudden, that joy begins to come in a way that's lasting, a way that's not circumstantial, a way that impacts every single area of our lives. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see their creator. They shall know their God. They shall walk with him. They shall have peace. They shall have joy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I invite you to close your eyes and bow your heads with me. Today, um, I just want to give you an opportunity in a fresh way to confess your need for God. Let's not play games with him. Let's not, let's not try to play religious games and act like we got it all together because we can follow a system. Let's be honest with God. In this moment, maybe you've never begun a relationship with God, and today the decision for you is to begin letting him do that initial cleansing in your heart. To confess to God for the very first time that you need him. Today, a relationship between you and God can begin. Today, you can be made new. You can be a new creation today as you place your faith and your trust in him. There's an initial cleansing that God wants to do. It's not by working hard, harder. It's not by trying religiously. It's by saying, God, I need you in my life. I want you in my life. And so today, if that's where you are, I want to ask you to say a very simple prayer back to God that might go something like this. Say, God, I recognize that I'm a sinner. I want to place my faith in you. The Bible says, it's by grace you're saved, not by works so that no man can boast. Just tell him today, I, want, I recognize I'm a sinner. I want to receive your mercy today. I place my faith in what you did on a cross for me. Believe that after you were crucified that you resurrected from the dead. Just tell him today. I want to give you my life, every area of it. Every relationship, my finances, my time. 
I want to give it back to you. Today, that relationship with God can begin is in your heart. It's not a prayer that makes you a follower of Christ. It's a condition of your heart. Today, that initial cleansing can come. You can stand before him forgiven that when you lay your head down on the pillow tonight, you can be a new creation. You can have received his mercy and his forgiveness. No decision that you will ever make in your life will trump the significance of this decision right now to place your faith and your hope in Christ. Today, let him be your God. Let him lead and guide your life. Others of you, the decision is not to begin the relationship. The decision is to begin to cooperate with him at a higher level. What's the condition of your heart today? When you look at your heart, what do you see? Do you see anger, greed, guilt, jealousy? And let him, let him begin to restore you with joy. Let him begin to give you his forgiveness. Confess to him what are the things in your life that you hope nobody finds out about. What's that secret sin that you've been holding on to that you hope your roommate doesn't see, that you hope that your spouse doesn't know about, that you hope your boss doesn't discover? Confess it to God. There's mercy at the foot of the cross. There's nothing that you've ever done that God could not forgive you for. But that which will stand in your way is your guilt and your shame and your unwillingness to confess to him and acknowledge your need for his help. Today, tell him right now in this moment, God, I need you. I need you to give me joy. I need you to give me peace. I need you to restore me. Cleansing of the heart comes as we cooperate with God, as he purifies us. Let me pray. God, thank you. Thank you that you came to earth to deal with the wickedness in us. Thank you that you don't just give us more rules, but you give us freedom in you. That as we place our faith in you and we follow you by loving you and loving others, that there is tremendous joy lasting peace. I want that for my life. I want that for this church. God, thank you for the cross today. And we recognize that it all goes back to that, that if there was no cross, there's no hope. If there's no resurrection, there's, there's no expectation and anticipation of eternity with you. And so today, confess that you're good. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your mercy for every single one of us in the room. We're broken and we need you to fix us. You're the only one that can. Thank you for the comfort that comes in the midst of our brokenness that you can be our healer today. We need you. In Jesus' name, amen.